The following message is from the 2019 IBCD pre-conference with Scott Mell. Essentials. We've covered a lot of ground so far. We've talked about a number of different things, a number of different ways that we can, are called to care for and love and minister to others in our lives. And, and, and if you just think about, think about some of the people in your lives. Maybe the, the person, a couple of sessions ago, I asked you to think about specific people, specific um, messes that, that, that you, not calling the people messes, but messes that people are in, um, in, in, in and around you and how God is calling you to um, engage with them. And, and just just imagine with me what you think would happen if you did take the time to patiently know that person, to, to know their circumstance, to know specifically what was going on in their, in their life, to, to listen well and ask questions, to, to interpret and, and consider what was most needed. Think about what would happen if you took time to serve them, to, to pray for them, to share your life with them and to bear with them and forgive them. What would happen if you took the time to speak truth and, and hope and affirmation and correction in their lives? And I think for most of us, if, if we think about that, what would most likely happen is they would probably be encouraged. They would probably feel better. Our, our relationship would probably be strengthened. And we'd be tempted, I think, to chalk it up as a success and say, hey, that's all I need to do, right? That's all God's calling me to do. Like, I engaged, I was there, you know, I, I cared for this person, I sought to love them, and they feel better. They seem to be acting like things are going better. Our, our relationships seem stronger, right? This seems like a success, and, and we'd be tempted, I think, to stop there. Actually, I think oftentimes in our relationships, we're tempted to stop there. But God is calling us to more than just making others feel better. He's calling us to more than just strengthening our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. He's, 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 he's calling us to more than just saying that was nice, that seemed like a success, that seemed to work, right? He's calling us to help them become more like Jesus. And if that's the goal, then we, we can't stop here. Right? We, we've been talking about all along, gospel care is the God-exalting, grace-saturated act of loving another person through uh, patient knowing, sacrificially serving, truthfully speaking, and finally, consistently applying the gospel in order to help them become more like Jesus. The word I like to use to describe this consistent application of the gospel is gospeling. You've seen it on the, on the diagrams. Um, and for the record, I did not make up gospeling. <laughs> Again, this is something that, 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 number one, we tend to do as Christians, but is actually done all throughout the, the New Testament. The angel Gabriel is said to gospel Zechariah when he tells him about the, the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, Philip gospeled the Ethiopian eunuch. And Paul, actually, in, in Corinthians, he says, when he reminded them again of literally the gospel that I gospeled to you. 
And so, so gospeling is actually, a, we see, is utilized throughout the New Testament as a verb. And as a verb, it essentially means announcing the good news, teaching the good news, or even reminding of the good news. But I, I, I'm afraid that the mistake we too often make is think that if gospeling is about teaching or announcing the good news, then gospeling is only something we do for people who aren't yet Christians, right? Because we'd be thinking in our heads, okay, well, wait, who needs the gospel, right? Who do I need to bring the gospel? Well, the gospel is for people who aren't Christians yet. Because if you're a Christian, you know the gospel. So why would I gospel you, right, if you already know it? The problem is we constantly forget it. Not only do we constantly forget it, but we rarely, if ever in our lives, comprehend the depth and magnitude of it. And so as Christians, what life and what loving one another looks like involves, has to involve reminding one another of gospel truth, gospeling one another so that we might comprehend afresh and anew the depth and the power of the good news of Jesus Christ and therefore, as we're gonna see, be transformed more and more into Christ. One of the most helpful books I've read on this, actually, is at least Fitzpatrick and uh, Dennis Johnson's book, Counsel from the Cross. I mean, anybody who's uh, doing personal ministry in our church, I, I love to, to, to put a copy of it in their hands. And in, in it, in it they, they write this. They say, the truth of the gospel, that we are in him, isn't meant only for those who are beginning the Christian life. It's meant for all of us every day. There's that phrase again, all of us, every day, right? Every day, as long as it's called today. Every day, you and I need to be reminded of the gospel. And every day, everyone else in your life needs to be reminded of the gospel. Every day, every person in the midst of the mess needs to be reminded of the gospel. And in order for the good news to resonate deeply with us every day, that starts with us understanding and being reminded of and and, and maybe even coming to a fresh comprehension of the depth of the problem that the gospel addresses, right? If, If, I mean, somebody could remind you or remind you that your grade has been redeemed, but if you believe you got an A, then it doesn't mean that much, right? So somebody could tell you that the cancer has been removed from your body, but if you didn't think you were sick, it's not that great a news, right? But when you thought you had an F, right, when you knew that you had incurable cancer, all of a sudden the good news t- changes completely. Why? Because of the predicament you were in without it. And much of the time, I think sometimes the, 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 the lack of appreciation we have for the beauty and magnitude of the gospel comes from the fact that we forget the magnitude of the predicament we're in without it. In order to appreciate the gospel, we have to recognize the depth of the problem. Now, when I say recognizing the depth of the problem, I I would assume that one word pops into your mind, right? The depth, when I recognize the depth of the problem, the word that probably pops into your mind is sin, right? The depth of the problem is sin. And while that's a significant contributor to the messes in our our life, and we're going to get to that, and we're going to look at at that in depth, it's not the only contributor to the depths of the problem, the depths of the messes in our life. 
Almost all of the messes we, we experience in our life are actually a combination of both sin and suffering. Sin and suffering actually combine together in this incredible tornado, this, this vortex that just spirals us downwards. Has anyone who's ever struggled in your life ever described it to you like a spiral? Right? Have you ever experienced something that felt like a spiral, right? I just, I was spiraling downward. The, the things that contribute to that spiral aren't ever just one thing. Right? It's never just sin. It's never just suffering. It's never just your parents. It's never just your school. It's never just your heart, even. It's never just your mistakes. It's all of these things that combine together and drag us down into this mess that can feel and seem hopeless. And rescue from this kind of vortex requires a miracle, right? It seems like there's no way out, and there isn't apart from the miraculous good news of the gospel. So what I want to do first is look at the depth of both the suffering and sin that contribute to our messes so that we can appreciate the, the magnitude of the good news that meets us both in the suffering or suffering in a fallen world and in our sin as people with fallen hearts. Right, in the tragically fallen world in which we live, we suffer constantly in deep and significant ways. Right now, I think too often people think of suffering as something they experience in seasons, but in other times they're not suffering, right? Like, I went through a season of suffering, but now I'm not suffering. Or like, oh, well, that's good to know for when I suffer. Which I think is, is generally a, a pretty naive understanding of suffering in a fallen world. Now, don't get me wrong, we, we, we suffer to greater degrees at times and lesser degrees at times, but uh, there's not a day you wake up on this earth that you're not suffering. And I think remembering that and recognizing that helps us realize the, pre the reality of the predicament we're in. Right? We suffer in all sorts of different ways. I mean, for, first of all, we, we suffer from having fallen bodies, right? We get sick. We age and things work, don't work as well as they used to. Our hormones get out of whack. Our vitamins get out of whack. Our blood sugar gets out of whack. Our nervous system gets out of whack. We, we experience uh, all sorts of disabilities. We, we, we experience physical pain. And eventually, we die. As people with fallen bodies, they eventually die. Not only that, but every single person in our life also dies. Every single person we love will die. And we suffer as a result of it. We don't just have fallen bodies. We also live in a fallen environment. Right? There's pollution everywhere deterioration everywhere. There's natural disasters. The, the, the climate is changing, continues to make things worse and worse and worse for an enti the entire globe. But not only that, there, there's just a general finitude of resources, right? Ever since the fall, ever since Adam and Eve, the ground is, makes it difficult to get sustenance from. And, and there's no system in the world that can do away with that effect. That's why work, no matter what job you do, is so hard. 
Because by its very nature, we live in this fallen environment where things are hard. Tragically so at times. We suffer from fallen bodies. We suffer from a fallen environment. We also suffer from living in a fallen culture. Right? We live in a vastly individualistic culture. We live in a consumeristic culture. We live in a, an erotically consumed culture. We live in a, a racist culture. We live in a, a, a cultures that are so divided over so many things. I mean, just, just like, like pick the topic and we can, humans can divide over it. Right? We, we, we can cause fights and arguments and division even in our churches over almost anything. Because we live in this divided culture that, 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 that just promotes it. And this fallen culture that we live in is like the air that the people we're ministering to breathe. They don't even realize how deeply impacted and shaped they are by the culture in which they live. But it's not just them, right? We don't realize how deeply shaped and impacted we are by the culture in which we live. And we suffer because of it. The people around us suffer because of it. We suffer from having fallen bodies and a fallen environment with fallen cultures. We suffer from the ongoing impact of Satan and demons, right? From the temptations and, and lies that are constantly uh, suggested and put in our place. Satan is the ruler of this present world. And not only that, we, we suffer from the fact that he's convinced most of us he's not a problem. He's not really there. It's not a big deal, not something we need to think about or talk about. And not only that, but we also suffer from the, the limitations and imperfections of, of everyone around us. Right? Where, where we live among people that just make life harder. Whether it's the little child that just doesn't quite understand instructions yet, whether it's the parent who's lost their hearing. Right? Whether it's the boss that's just not well suited to his job, whether it's the employee that, that just has, takes a long time to, to master tasks. I mean, just, just one, another's, um, one another's constant inefficiencies and, and, and weaknesses, we suffer as a result of. It makes life harder. But it's not just our, our weaknesses. We also suffer at the hands of one another's sin. Like we talked about before, we are sinful people living surrounded by sinful people, which means every single person in our lives sins against us. Everyone. Sometimes in, in subtle and kind of mundane ways, and sometimes in tragic and horrific and heartbreaking ways. We suffer every day. This is why Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I think that exhortation is fascinating because it, isn't that the reaction of most people when when suffering gets thrown in your face, 
in a way that you just can't deny it, in a way that hurts or is, is particularly acute, isn't the response often, well, wait, something strange is happening to me? Right? What is this strange thing that's happening to me? Like, this strange thing, it, it's, it, it shouldn't be like this. This isn't right. And, and it's not right, but it's normal. It's not right, but it is predictable. We live in a fallen world that can be crushing to us as humans. So what, what's our exhortation? I, I, you feel good yet? Ready to go? <laughs> right, what's, what's our exhortation? What's our exhortation to those we're ministering to in the midst of this horrifically fallen world? Right, is it, well, you shouldn't be surprised. Let's not go with that. What's, what's option B? <laughs> I think the, the biblical response is the, really the biblical dis, or the spiritual discipline of lament. God calls us to, in the midst of this horrifically fallen world, to lament. And we can invite those we're ministering to to lament in the midst of the suffering as well. I think lament is an unfamiliar discipline for, for most of us. I think it's unfamiliar in, in a lot of Christian circles because we equate it with complaining. And somewhere along the line, we, we learned that complaining's not a good thing. Right? Complaining's something we shouldn't do. Right? Whether it's from, the, from watching Israel in the desert and being like, eh, they complained and God didn't seem to like that. Or maybe it's Philippians 2.14, right? do all things without grumbling or complaining. And so we say, okay, I, just, I guess I just like suck it up and pretend like it's not happening. That's, that's not the biblical model. See, lament is fundamentally different than complaining. Lament, or complaining is making a grievance about God. Lament is making a grievance to God. And while one seeks to undercut the reality and the glory of God, the other is an act of faith. To complain about God is not what we're called to. It does undercut his glory and, and waters the seeds of doubt. But lament, bringing our complaint to God, is an act of faith. It's one that cries out and says, I don't understand. I don't know where you are. I don't know what is going on. I don't understand what is happening. This doesn't seem right, but I'm going to cry out to you because still, in the midst of it all, I believe you hear me. It makes me think of Psalm 22, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. See, first of all, and there's, there's lament psalms all through the psalms. They're beautiful and powerful, and they're in the word of God to be examples of prayers that we, as God's children, can pray, should pray. When someone cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We shouldn't rebuke them and say, you shouldn't talk like that. We should invite them to pray like that, to cry out to God with the depths of their doubts and their concerns. Not only that, but these are the same words that were on the, literally on the lips of Jesus. 
given as a, in the moment of the depth of him taking on the magnitude of our sin. To cry out to God in lament is to pray a prayer of faith that even though I feel forsaken, even though you seem far away, even though you seem not to answer, I trust that you can hear me. And so I can bring this to you. And so gospeling one another begins with helping one another appreciate the depth and magnitude of our suffering. Gospeling doesn't involve painting over it. Doesn't mean pretending it's not there. It helps one another, it means helping one another to recognize the depth and magnitude of our suffering and crying out to God together in the midst of it. Now, of course, appreciating the, the depth and magnitude of our sin, I'm sorry, appreciating the depth and magnitude of the problem in which, the mess in which we live, doesn't only involve appreciating the depth of our suffering, it also means appreciating the depth of our sin. We live in a fallen world as people with horrifically fallen hearts. Sin is a fundamental part of the mess of life. What, what comes to mind when you hear me say that? That sin is a fundamental part of the mess of life. Often I think when you hear sin, you think, those sinful things I do, those bad things people do are a fundamental part to the mess of life. And in part, that's true, right? But God actually takes this deeper. Sin isn't just when you lie to your boss or when you cheat on your taxes or kiss the wrong person or drink the wrong thing or take something that's not yours. As Jesus revealed to us repeatedly and taught repeatedly in his earthly ministry, sin goes so much deeper than that. Sin's about the, the why behind all of that. Sin is about the heart that, that those are the, the symptoms of. This is why he tells the Pharisees repeatedly, you, you're just washing the outside of the cup, but the inside is still a mess. This is why he called them whitewashed tombs, right? Looking nice on the outside, but with nothing but dead bones on the inside. Because sin isn't just a broken rule problem, Sin is a heart problem. It's a problem at the core of our souls. So what's wrong with our souls? What's wrong then with our hearts? What, what is fundamentally the problem? Well, apart from Christ, our hearts are turned in on themselves. Self-satisfaction is our strongest desire. Self-esteem is our greatest need. Self-preservation is our ultimate goal. Self-promotion is our most familiar tool, and in theological terms, we worship ourselves. And as we worship ourselves, our worship of ourselves produces all these little minor gods, these little idols that we, that we look to to say, maybe that will bring me happiness, maybe that will get me what I want, right? Maybe that will deliver me. All from this inward-focused worship of myself. Now, of, of course, in Christ, we've been given a new heart. We've been given a, a new and, and sanctified heart. However, in this life, our heart isn't completely perfected yet. In this life, we live in, in this tension between both our self-worshipping heart and a God-worshipping heart. This is 
One of the things that, that so many, I think, Christians can be confused by, it leads us to cry out with, with Paul in Romans 7 when he says, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Like, what's going on? I mean, doesn't that sound like most of the people in the midst of messes in your life? Like, why am I doing this very thing I don't want to do? Why am I doing the thing that I hate? Like, what? And it's confusing to live life as a Christian with a two-parted heart in this world. But that's exactly what we have. The new part of our heart worships God and longs for his glory. But the old part of our heart worships ourselves and really longs for our ultimate glory. And so we walk through life kind of in this, this war, this tension between the two. We're like a tree with, with two sets of roots, right? One that's, that, that's healthy, that produces good fruit, behaviors, thoughts, emotions on some of the tree's branches. And, and the other set of roots that, that, that's unhealthy, self-worshipping, producing dead, rotten behavior, emotions, thoughts on the other branches. And the sin in our lives, the, the ongoing sin we experience, the ways we fall short is just the natural produ- product of the fact that our hearts are not yet perfectly sanctified. They're not yet perfectly holy. We're still growing to become more and more and more like Christ. And then, so the, the self-worshipping part of our hearts produces our sinful thoughts. Right? When our minds dwell on escape, when we, when we look to indulgences for our, our comfort, when our, our minds are consumed by bitterness or, or just a longing for revenge, when our minds are captivated by, by what God calls off, says are off limits, or even when our minds are captivated by anything more than they're captivated by God. He says this is because fundamentally we worship ourselves instead of the one true God who is truly worthy of our worship. But our self-worshipping hearts also produce our sinful behaviors, right? When we, when we lash out in anger at, at a child or at a coworker, when we gossip or, or tear down, when we indulge our, 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 our sexual desires with, with someone who's not our spouse or even just by ourselves, it's, it's because we're worshiping ourselves. We worship ourselves instead of the one true God who truly deserves our worship or our self-worshipping hearts produce our sinful emotions, not just our thoughts and our behaviors, but even our sinful emotions. And some of you might be like, whoa, wait, wait. What? sinful emotions? Like, aren't emotions just neutral? Like, aren't emotions just the things that, that happen to us? But there are countless places throughout the New, New Testament and throughout Scripture that equate emotional words with sin, envy, jealousy, Anger, anxiety, coveting. And the real question, the question God's after is what what are our emotions flowing from? What are the desires? What are the longings? What are the, the, the things that we love most that are pouring forth from out of our emotions? Good emotions and happy emotions aren't all godly and sad emotions aren't all sinful. But the question is, what, the, what deep desires, what longings are producing our emotional responses? 
when we're overwhelmed with anxiety because we can't afford a bigger house, or we're paralyzed by fear because we doubt God's goodness, or we're overcome with anger because we haven't received the promotion we think we deserve, it's because we are worshiping ourselves and not the one true God who alone truly deserves our worship. And there's been a lot of ink spilled on the topic of idolatry, and I don't have time to unpack it all here, but but I think it begs the question, how then can we help those we're ministering to recognize the depth of their sin and, and how do they, what's the step forward for them? And just like in light of the depth of suffering, we're called to lament. In light of the depth of our sin, we're called to confess. And we should call those we're ministering to to confess. And, and by confess, I don't just mean like listing the things they did that are wrong, like listing their bad behavior or their bad thoughts. But I, by confession, I mean agreeing with God that a significant portion of our heart is still turned inward on itself. Agreeing with God that our sin goes deeper than we realize. Agreeing with God that we stand condemned on our own and desperately need his grace. And we should be helping those we're ministering to to be specific in their confessions, to identify the specific actions and thoughts and behaviors and emotions and words that are demonstrating the self-focus of their hearts, but we should also be encouraging them to go deeper. Not to say, oh, I made a mistake. Oh, that was the wrong thing. I should do better. But to say, no, this shows that I am still captivated by my own worship of myself. I still worship myself instead of the one true God who truly deserves it. You see, because we can't understand the magnitude of the glory of the gospel unless we understand this magnitude of the problem. And the problem is huge. Problem's huge. The su- we have live in a horrifically fallen world where we suffer every day. And we live with horrifically fallen hearts where it, when we're honest with ourselves, we admit that we actually live out of the motivation, sometimes out of that self-worshiping motivation every day. And we need desperately his grace. We need his hope in the midst of it. Again, good news is only as good as the problem it addresses is bad. If someone tells you they paid off your credit card bill and you owed 100 bucks, that'd be great. But somebody telling you they paid off your credit card bill when you'd racked up $100,000, it's incredible. But somebody telling you they paid off your credit card bill when somehow, because they gave it to you, you owed $100 billion, right, is truly, literally unimaginable. And the gospel's the same way. When we think that God's forgiven us for our mistakes, it's nice. When we think that he redeems the bad things that happen here and there, it's great. But when we recognize the depth of the suffering we experience living in a fallen world. And we remember the depth of our sin, the depth of sin and self-worship in our fallen hearts. 
And it's into that that God speaks redemption and hope. All of a sudden, the gospel comes alive again in a way that every single one of us needs it. And in the final session, we're going to look at the beauty of that gospel message and the the beauty of that gospel message and what that means for our lives. So, in the previous session, we, we looked at how, we looked at the depth of suffering and sin in a fallen world and its people with fallen hearts, which, um, I mean, if, if you didn't end that session a little bit discouraged, then you probably weren't listening. <laughs> it's pretty discouraging. Like, like looking it all in, in the face can be pretty discouraging, but this is a part of what I, I believe God is calling us to do. It's part of speaking the truth and gospeling one another in love. It's not just saying, don't worry, it's not that bad. It's telling people, you know what? It's worse than you think. But that just means that God's grace is greater than you ever imagined. Because it never goes deeper Our sin never goes deeper than God's grace will ever reach. And not only that, our suffering never goes deeper than God's ability to redeem. No matter how deep it goes, his redemption and his forgiveness are always there. And so then having helped people recognize the depth and the magnitude of their sin, which is what we ought to do in gospel care, we ought to help them see and have the courage to look in the, I think most of the time, people know that they're sufferers, they know that they're sinners, but they just don't have the courage to look it in the face and to be honest about it. And so we we need to help them see the the reality of the problem, help them look it in, in the face, and then help them, and then remind them of the beautiful, glorious truth of the gospel. This is why every single one of us needs reminders of gospel truth every single day. Because the suffering really is that bad. And the sin really is that bad. And so we need to be reminded of gospel truth every single day. Our hearts long for it. Our souls long for it. We wake up every morning thirsty for someone to remind us and tell us of the good news of Jesus, that there is hope in the midst of the reality of this circumstance that we're waking up into. And so God is calling us to, out of love, gospel one another, announce the good news to one another, remind one another of the good news. And while it might be familiar for how we need to gospel the truth to one another in regards to our sin, I think it may be less familiar as to how we gospel one another in light of our suffering. But throughout the New Testament, the topic of suffering comes up over and over and over and over again. But not only that, it is almost always, there are always coupled with gospel truth. The reminder and the reason for hope in the midst of of suffering is the redemption and power of God's promises in the gospel. We get reminders of truths like the fact that God understands everything we're going through. 
that God will never leave us or forsake us, that, that God will lead us through the pain and preserve us for ultimate joy, that, that, that God mourns with us in the depths. And all of this we know most intimately because of and through the gospel. And all of his promises apply specifically to us as Christians because of the gospel. They're all implications. They're, they're all overflow from the reality of the gospel. And there's all sorts of different places we could turn. But just, let's just take Romans chapter 5 as, a, as an example. In Romans chapter 5, the chapter begins this way. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Right? I can't get much more of a clear gospel description than that, right? We've been justified by faith, and we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have joy. Because of that, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, right? This is the gospel. It's the implications. It's the reality of the gospel and the implications of the gospel. And immediately following this reminder, Paul points out how this reality of gospel truth gives us hope in the midst of suffering. He goes on in verse 3 and says, more than that, so we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And he says, and more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. All right, there's a lot of like words kind of in in succession there. So let's, let's unpack this real quick. He, he says, suffering produces endurance. Which is interesting, right? Because that, that's not the way we want life to work, right? We want endurance so that we can bear up under suffering, right? Give me endurance and then I'm ready. And he's like, he's like no, no, no. Actually, suffering produces the endurance. That's one of the ways, he says, that I'm going to redeem the fallen world in which we live is I'm going to use it and turn it on its head. In my upside-down kingdom, I'm going, to use, I'm going to use the painful and the difficult in order to bring about endurance, the virtue of endurance in your life and heart. He says not only that, but this Virtue of endurance, he says that it's endurance as you experience it over and over and as you continue to grow in endurance in the midst of a, of a fallen world, it's going to produce your character. It's not just going to be something that you had for a while. It's going to become who you are. You're not just going to have some endurance or have a little bit of endurance. He says you are going to be an enduring person. Because of the way I am, it's going to be your character, who you are. So I'm going to use suffering to produce endurance, and endurance is going to produce this godly character, this steadfastness in you. He says, and in character is going to produce hope. He says, as you see God redeeming your suffering, as you see God transforming you more and more into the image of Christ through even the depths of the pain you're experiencing, it says, through all of that, it's going to give you hope. You're going to look at it. You're going to point to it and be like, look, God's real. He's really working. This is a horrible, horribly painful experience. But even in it, God works and he's faithful. And it reminds us and it gives us hope. 
This suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And then he says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Look, he ends it just with more gospel truth, right? How has the the Holy Spirit been poured into our hearts? That's that's a product of the gospel. That's a a part of the good news is that God's Spirit has now come to dwell in us as his adopted children. It's been poured into us. This is all gospel truth in the midst of our suffering. And what every Christian needs to be reminded in every situation, particularly in suffering, is the good news of Jesus Christ and God's plan to, through Christ and through the gospel, redeem even the darkest parts of our lives. Gospel truth speaks hope into the suffering we experience in a fallen world, and gospel truth speaks hope into the sin we possess as people with fallen hearts. While the sin in our hearts is deeper and darker than we knew, none of that's news to God. He knows that you're even worse than you think you are. Those you're ministering to and caring for, he knows that they're worse than they think they are. And into, he knows all, he knows all the depth of their sin, even more than they do, even more than you do. And it's in with that knowledge that he declared them forgiven. It's with that complete knowledge of all of the depth of their sin that he declared them righteous. That he said, through my son, you have been adopted. You've been justified. You're going to be glorified. You you have an inheritance. You've been born again. You are my beloved. God looks at all of our sin, all of our mixed motives, all of the ways that we still worship ourselves, even after all these years of learning about him and, and growing in him and, and being sanctified by him, even after, even if you've been a Christian for your entire life, for decades and decades, he knows that, this, that sin still haunts your heart. And he looks at your thoughts and your behaviors and emotions that flow out of these desires and declares such were some of you, 1 Corinthians 6. But you were washed and you were sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. So whatever the depth of the sin, we can, we can allow people, we can usher people in and help them see and appreciate and look the depth of their sin in the face because it is never beyond the magnitude of his grace. And they look at even the, 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 the worst parts of our hearts and parts of our souls, and he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says from Colossians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with him. From Ephesians 2, he says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that we might be reconciled both to God and in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility with one another. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. I, I, I could go on and on. And, and seriously, I mean seriously, you could just play New Testament roulette 
and find incredible blessings of the gospel, right? Just like, and this is why, this is why so often the things that people need to hear in your life are whatever you read that morning, because whatever you read that morning is powerful and beautiful and good and gospel truth, and it's a very good chance. It's the type of thing that people who are in the mess of suffering and sin desperately need to hear. You don't need to know just the one right verse. There's, all, there's so many. And as we read and we grow and we, and we study and we, and we know his word, the, the, the hope and the glory of the implications of the gospel overflow off of every page. And these are the kinds of gospels reminders that we need to be reminded of again and again and again. This is why Peter in his second letter writes, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. This is what you and I should be able to say to all those in our lives. As long as I'm in this body, I'm gonna stir you up by way of reminder of these truths. I'm not gonna assume you know the gospel. I'm not just gonna assume you know everything you need to know about it. I'm not gonna assume you woke up this morning readily conscious of gospel truth. I'm gonna assume that every day, as long as it's called today, that every day I'm in this body, you need me to remind you again. Because every one of us does, and every person in every mess in your life desperately does. This stirring up by way of reminder is what Paul calls the renewing of your mind. And he says it's the renewing of your mind that's how transformation comes. Romans 12 talks about not being conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this is what he's talking about, being stirred up by the renewing of our mind, the, the, the reminders of gospel truth. Because the only way to get rid of self-worship is to have it displaced by an ever-increasing God-worship. You, you can't just try to stop self-worshipping. You can try to stop stealing. You can try to stop cheating. You can try to stop lying. You can try to stop cheating on your spouse. You can try to stop all sorts of things. You can try to stop being angry. But if the problem is the worship in our hearts, we realize it's something deeper than we can just try to stop doing. And the people you're ministering to can't just stop worshiping themselves. The only way to displace self-worship in our heart is by an ever-growing, ever-increasing worship but that comes as a result of being captivated by the truth and the glory and the beauty of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so we remind one another again and again and again. Milton Vincent writes in his excellent resource, A Gospel Primer for Christians. He writes, the gospel reveals to me the breathtaking glory and loveliness of God. And in so doing, it lures my heart away from love of self and leaves me enthralled by him instead. 
We wanna remind one another of gospel truth every day so that we might lure one another's hearts away from the love of themselves and help enthrall them with the beauty and glory of God. Because he is ultimately beautiful. He is ultimately glorious. But we don't have to like work ourselves up to convince ourselves that he is. We just need to see him plain. And when we see him plain, when we see him, even get a glimpse of him as he truly is through the, the, the revelation of who he is in his word, through the description of his promises and his goodness, through the magnitude of his grace, when we even get a glimpse of who he truly is, it captivates our hearts. And we want to follow him. We want to worship him. It makes our, our self-worship just fall away in the background, which is why the people we're ministering to need more than just to be told what to do and what not to do. They need to see Jesus. And it's not just a preacher to tell them, it's you. Right? Every single one of us needs to help every day. We, we are called, we have the privilege of telling every single one of them, you look It changes everything. But there's one last component that we can't miss. Once we've helped them to see Jesus, we need to help them know how God calls them to respond in light of that worship. When they say, Lord, I want to do your will, how can I? Where can I go? What should I do? If we stop without taking them there, it's, it's, like, it's, like running a, it's like running 25 miles of a marathon and then walking off the course. It's like, wait, no, no, that wasn't the point. The point was to finish the race, and finishing the race involves not only reminding them of gospel truths, but instructing them in gospel commands. In light of who God is, here is how he's called us to respond to his incredible love. As James famously reminds us, faith without works is dead. Or to put it another way, worship-fueled thoughts without worship-fueled action isn't true worship at all. He wants us to put it into practice. He wants us to glorify him. Be, again, not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that Romans 12.1, so that our lives might be, our whole lives might be an act of worship to him. Just as a self-worshipping heart produces certain behaviors and thoughts and emotions, right, what Paul calls, calls the works of the flesh, a God-worshipping, a God-captivated heart produces th certain thoughts and behaviors and emotions as well. What he calls the fruit of the Spirit. And as our hearts burn more and more out of love for him and our desire for his glory, we'll want to know more and more how we can show that love, how we can demonstrate that love, how we can live out that love. And the people that you're ministering to need those reminders too. Not just a reminder of who God is, but how he desires them to live in light of who he is. As I, our souls, as, as I mentioned before, our souls long to be reminded of gospel truths. 
And when they are, when, when we're captivated by the glory and beauty of Jesus, our souls will also long to know how we can please him. Our souls will long to know how we can glorify him in our lives. They'll long to be instructed in gospel commands. And the greatest way we can express our love for God in our thoughts and our emotions is to trust him, especially in the midst of suffering. Do you see, the call to trust God is an important and a foundational one for all Christians. But it comes at the, the end of being reminded of who God is, not at the beginning. You don't start like, oh, you're struggling, you're hurting. You, know, you just need to trust God, right? right? Right truth, wrong time. But once we've helped them see again, see Jesus afresh, then we can call them to trust God because it glorifies him so beautifully. Think about what it communicates when any child doesn't trust their parent. Right? Either the parent is untrustworthy or the relationship is somehow broken. And the same is true with our relationship with God. We fail to trust him, we're conveying that either he is somehow untrustworthy or our relationship is somehow broken. Now, of course, to help someone trust God, is a, it's an art. <laughs> There's no script for it. It involves all sorts of knowing and serving and speaking but as we massage the truth of the gospel into their hearts, as we remind them again and again of the beauty of who God is, of how trustworthy he truly is, ultimately there will come a time when we consider what's most needed and what's, what will most be needed is to invite them, to call them, to trust him with their life, with their heart, with whatever it is they're going through. Just as the New Testament is filled with blessings, it's also filled with instructions. Instructions like 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And while the greatest way we can express our love for God and our thoughts and our emotions is to trust him, greatest way we can express our love for God and our thoughts and our behaviors is to obey him. As the gospel takes a deeper and deeper root in our hearts, we come to worship God more and more. It's only natural that our self-worshiping hearts of disobedience would be transformed more and more into God-worshiping hearts that looked for ways to obey him that wanted to know how he desired for us to live and that listened to it. And so we similarly ought to call one another not just to trust God, we ought to call one another to obey God. We ought to remind one another, this is a part, fundamental part of gospeling one another, to remind one another of gospel truths and to instruct one another in the commands that flow from those truths, to, to the call to obey God. This is why scripture so clearly equates love for God with obedience to God. We, we talked in, in the session on love. We, we, we pulled a lot from 1 John. And in that same book, John writes, and in chapter five, he says, by this we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. 
For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Burdensome obedience is one of the hallmarks of a heart that continues to be captivated by self-worship. But as we come to understand how spiritually rich we are in Christ, our souls long for an in, our entire lives to reflect that reality. And one of the greatest ways we can love one another is to point one another to obedience. And to say, this is how you can honor the Lord who has loved you so deeply. Live this way. Strive to live this way. Let me give you accountability so that you might live this way. And the call to obey God isn't just some general call. It's not just, just do things better for him. It's, it's a specific call with specific instructions throughout the New Testament. God is calling us specifically to flee any form of sexual immorality. God's calling us to be united as one across barriers that tend to divide us. He's calling the, the people that you are ministering to, he's calling them to be united with specific other people. He's calling them to care for specific poor and marginalized people in their lives and in their community. He's calling them to specifically be ambassadors in their workplaces, in their schools, in their families. He's calling them, all of us, to love one another, and he's calling the people you're ministering to to love specific other people in their lives. And to genuinely love one another involves helping one another identify the specific ways God calls us to obey. We can love one another deeply by calling them to specific obedience in light of the beauty and the glory of the gospel. So in short, I mean, to, to summarize kind of all of this gospeling, if you're going to say, what is gospeling? Gospeling is helping those that you're caring for, helping those you're ministering to, to realize that the problem is worse than they ever thought. That that means that God's grace is greater than they ever imagined. And that God's call is therefore more radical than they ever thought possible. And as we do, we will help them become more like Jesus, which rounds out the definition we've been looking at this entire time, right? Gospel care is the God-exalting, grace-saturated act of loving another person through patiently knowing, sacrificially serving, truthfully speaking, and consistently applying the gospel in order to help them become more like Jesus. I hope that that that, uh, I hope that that definition means a lot more now than it did a few hours ago when you heard it for the first time. I hope it's filled with the reality and beauty of the gospel and what God's called each one of us to. And I know we've covered a lot, and I, I also know that there's no way you're going to remember it all. <laughs> um, but that's, that's actually part of why I, we tried to summarize it in these words that maybe you can remember, right? That if you're called to love one another, you're called to do so by knowing them, serving them, speaking them, and gospeling them, right? Looking at the lives of those around you, to, to ask those questions, am I genuinely loving these people? Am I genuinely loving this person? 
Am I taking the time to know them? Am I serving them? Am I speaking truth to them? And am I pushing through just basic truth in order to gospel them, to remind them of the depth of the problem, the magnitude of God's solution in Christ and the radical calling that comes as a result? But just remember, even as you know and serve and speak and gospel, there's still no script. Sometimes you're going to know, and then you're going to speak, and then you're going to know some more, and then you're going to serve, and then you're going to gospel, and then you're going to know. And other times you're going to serve, and then you're going to know, and then you're going to speak, and you're going to gospel, and every time it's going to be different. Every time it's going to happen kind of in some different orders with different dynamics. Every conversation is going to be unique. But hopefully this has given you at least a few more tools to know how to love those God's called you to love. And he has called you to love them. Well, you're the one that's called to play the music. right? You're the one that God has placed people in your life for a reason. And then the people, the people in your life, the messes in your own life and the messes in their lives, they're not there on accident. It wasn't a mistake. He didn't put them in your life thinking that maybe he needed someone else. They're there because God wants you to love them. He's calling you to love them. As a result, he's inviting you to be a part of the miraculous, beautiful, beautiful rescue plan for their lives. And you can. If you are a Christian, have the spirit of God in you, if you know the gospel at all, if you've been a Christian even for a day, you can. You have everything you need to begin to love them exactly the way God's calling you to. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you again for the beauty of the gospel and the glory of your son. We thank you, Jesus, for what you have provided and what you have done, which truly is unimaginable. We thank you, Spirit, for being here with us and dwelling in us and empowering all of this and changing us even through this time. Lord, will you use our, our time and our thoughts, the, the people we've thought of today, the moments we've had, Lord, will you use them to your glory and for the good of your church? Will you build your church as we seek to apply this? Lord, we know we're gonna, we know, we know that even as we do it, it's gonna be messy. <laughs> but it's also gonna be beautiful. Help us to trust in you and to love others increasingly like you have loved so perfectly and beautifully loved us. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2019, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.